You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, You have said that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. You have made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So please enable me to speak your word faithfully today and please cause it to do what you have promised it will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Well, a year ago, Heather and I came to the end of a 12-month long period in our lives, uh, that had been cluttered with decisions. There were many, many people, there were many decisions that people would call the big decisions. Some were made for us, some were made by us. Nevertheless, decisions were made and there were lots of them. Uh, For example, the college board in Singapore decided they would not renew my contract after we'd founded the Bible College and I'd been its principal for five years. We decided that was time to return to Australia, even though we had no jobs to go to. I was in my early 60s, so there was no guarantee that we'd find any ministries after we returned. So, um, we were to leave the students we had come to love. We would not be able to see their development as they left college and entered into formal ministry. We would hand over our precious work to others who would undoubtedly do it differently from us. Anyway, we decided to explore different ministry positions. Some doors for ministry closed some unexpected doors for ministry opened. Adam was quick in acquiring and we liked the idea of partnering in ministry with him. Another friend was also quick, so we joined Mike Rader, training preachers at the Centre for Biblical Preaching. But there were all sorts of other decisions as well. Decisions about housing, decisions about car purchases, housing loans, churches we would attend, visiting children and grandchildren or not, and so on and so forth. Life was full of decisions for us as we prepared for re-entry into Australia. And my experience with other Christians is that we often divide our decisions in life between big decisions and more mundane decisions. Big decisions are such things as what career are we going to have? Whom will we work for and why? Who will we marry? How many children will we have? Where will we live? How will we manage our finances? And so on. We spend much time, much energy, much prayer time and thinking on such decisions, don't we? Somehow we think that everything else will just fall into place if we get the the big decisions right. And sometimes there's a feeling that if we get those decisions wrong, well, we'll destroy our lives. Everything will be stuffed up, you know. (laughs) So life is divided for us. Big decisions, more mundane decisions. So, now let me say that my view is that the importance we give to big decisions is much, much overrated. I think our story today gives us an insight into this very issue. It will help us with decision making. So let's turn to 1 Samuel 9 and look at the extraordinary events laid out there. It's an, it's an intricate picture, isn't it? But let's get our bearings. Open up your Bibles at 1 Samuel and follow with me this quick run through the book so far. That way we'll be able to orient ourselves to this passage. So you remember the background. Foundational story of a barren woman called Hannah. 
She calls out to God for help. God does help her. He gives her a son. And she in turn gives her son, Samuel, back to God. Samuel enters into an apprenticeship, as it were, with Eli the priest. He grows up to become a prophet. Then chapter 3 tells us that God begins to speak to him. And Samuel begins to speak the word of God to the people of God. Then comes chapters 4 through to 7. They tell us about the Ark of the Covenant. Israel's engaged in war with the Philistines. They lose the battle. They lose a battle. Then they reason, well, maybe we'd do better if we had the Ark with us. But then they lose both the battle and the Ark and things aren't going well. However, the Philistines then have a huge problem with the Ark and they think the best thing is send it back to where it came from. These stories are significant. They make a clear theological point, I think. The point is that God does not need armies to win battles. And the people of God only need God to be secure. However, chapter 8 tells us that the people of God think that they need more than just God. They tell Samuel and God that they want a king just like all the other nations have around about them. And God tells them that their seeking for a king is a rejection of his kingship. He warns them that having a king will actually cause you great pain and hardship. Nevertheless, he also tells them God will, he will give them a king. That's how chapter 8 ends. God has promised the people a king and they've all gone home and they are waiting and Samuel is waiting and we are waiting to see if God grants their request. And we're waiting to see who that king will be. That's the, chapters, that's the focus of chapters 9 and 10. Let's now turn to those chapters. I encourage you to have your Bibles open digitally or hard copies. Now if you look and listen closely, you'll see that chapters 9 and 10 contain a story of three quests. Let me show you. The first quest starts in verse 1. Just as Samuel 1 introduced us to an insignificant and barren woman, here we're introduced to Kish, a man from a small and relatively insignificant tribe in Israel. Benjamin. Then we're introduced to his son, Saul, who is far from insignificant in terms of appearance. Uh, there was no one more impressive than him. Uh, he stands a head taller than anyone else. And he's good looking as well, apparently. Now look at verse 3. Here we're introduced to the first quest. Kish, his dad, has lost some donkeys. Saul is to seek the donkeys in the company of a servant. So off they go on this relatively mundane adventure. And all on the way, all these sorts of things happen to them. Did you notice them as we worked through the text? Um, they meet all kinds of people. First, they search home territory, verse 4. Then they broaden the search out to the district of Zuth, verse 5. Here, Saul nearly abandons the quest that he's been sent on, but in verses 6 and 10, the servant overcomes the threat and he persuades Saul to press on. And then we're introduced to the second quest. The second quest is to find a nameless prophet or a man of God, verse 6. The idea is that if you solve the second quest, you'll be able to solve the first quest. So they press on in verse 11. And as they do, they meet these two young women who point them in the right direction. 
the young women, they indicate that some important events are going on and that the prophet or the seer will be there to kick them off. In verse 15, we're introduced therefore to the third quest. Keep with me, the person who's doing the quest this time is not Saul, but Samuel. He's the prophet. And he's on a quest for a man from the tribe of Benjamin. And all of a sudden we think, oh, I wonder how this is going to coincide or not. A man who will be the leader of God's people or the ruler of God's people, verse 16. A man whom God will use to deliver or save his people. Now he doesn't know. Samuel doesn't know who that man is. But we do. Because we've been following him on this little quest. Now look at verse 17. The quests collide. Bang. Samuel's quest is resolved. He sees Saul. God tells him, this is the one, the one who will govern my people. Then in verses 18 and 19, the quest is resolved. He finds Samuel and Samuel says, he's the seer that he's seeking, the prophet. The only quest that now has to be resolved is, do you remember? The one about the donkeys. But Samuel puts that aside for a moment in verse 20 and tells him, don't worry about the donkeys, they've been found. It's all okay. And uh, then Saul is told that Israel wants things of him, verse 20. And Saul's overcome by this. After all, he says, I'm, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest of the tribes of Israel. Through a discussion between Samuel and the cook, then we find out that Saul is going to be the guest of honour at the, at the banquet. And in verses 26 and 27, we're told Samuel and Saul have this private conversation. And we presume it's about the kingship, but we're kept in the dark. The, the writer doesn't let us in to see what's going on. In verse 27, the servant is told about the king, uh, is sent on ahead while Samuel makes known to Saul the word of God. Then in chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel anoints Saul as ruler over the Lord's inheritance. It's a phenomenal thing that's happening. Then he's told of various people or groups of people that he'll meet on his journey home. And you think, my brain's exploding now with the number of people that are involved in this whole thing. First, he'll meet two men who will tell him that his original quest has been resolved, the donkeys have been found, verse 2. Second, he'll meet three men who will offer him bread, verses 3 to 4. Third, he'll meet a group of prophets and they'll prophesy, he will prophesy in their company, verse 5. And four, he will meet God. The Spirit of God will come upon him in power and he will be changed into a different person, verse 6. He's instructed that he's to do whatever his hand finds to do when all of these things happen. Finally, in verse 8, Samuel tells him solemnly to go to Gilgal and to wait for seven days until he comes. Now look at verse 9. We're told that as Saul turned away to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. Then we're told that all the signs were fulfilled. It's an amazing story in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, let me tell you. An amazing story. Three days before this, Saul started on a mundane but essential task of tracking down lost donkeys for dad. Chapter 9 verse 19 says that that is what he had set his heart on. However, this mundane quest, this everyday quest has been used by God to bring him to a point where he has a new heart and he's become a new, different person. 
His life will never be the same again. And that brings us to verse 14. Saul meets his uncle. Now, let me tell you a little bit about uncles. <laughs> in the ancient world, uh, an uncle is next in line after the father's authority. Okay? So, this uncle asked Saul for information about what Samuel said. Saul tell his, tells his uncle that Samuel had said to him that his quest for donkeys was over. But Saul does not tell his uncle and he does not tell us what Samuel said to him on the rooftop. Did you notice that? The narrator tells us it was about the kingship. But that's all he tells us. It's worth, it's worth noting that verse 16 is the first time that the kingdom has been mentioned in this story. We've heard about rulers and leaders, but no one, not even God, has mentioned them until now. So there's the story in a nutshell. It's a doozy to get for a sermon, isn't it? What do you do with this? Now, what I want to show you now is far more critical things about this story. The first thing has to do with Saul's appointment. If you've read the book of Judges, right, those of you who've read it, just think about what's in the book of Judges. You'll know that there's a regular pattern to what is done in the book of Judges. Do you remember it? Israel would sin. They would be attacked or subjugated by a foreign aggressor. That would cause immense distress and drive them to groan out to God. And God would answer them by raising up a judge for them who would rescue them. Do you remember that pattern? Now, with that pattern in mind, take a look at our story. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. God's heard the cry of his people. He will appoint a man. And that man will deliver Israel from the Philistines. That's the aggressor. Now, chapter 10, verse 15 tells us, here is a Philistine garrison. And the spirit will come upon Saul. And when that happens, he's to do whatever the circumstances require. Now, if you are a reader of the book of Judges, what do you think that will come to Saul's hand to do? What, following the pattern, what do you think he would do? I think he would be filled with the Spirit and under the influence of the Spirit should attack the Philistine outpost. That would be the normal pattern. So there's our first observation about the text. It gives the first hint that Saul is not going to be all that Israel is after. He's not going to be all that Israel is after. He's not going to be all that God is after. I think the author is giving us the very first hint that Saul is heading for failure. It's just a little hint. If you've read Judges, you'd know. That's the first point. But you know what? I don't think that's the main point of this story. The main point is tied up with God's activity. God is doing something very significant here. He has heard the request of his people and he's answering it. Right back of the, look back at the beginning of our passage again. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. God tells Samuel he's to anoint a ruler, a leader over his people. And do you know what the word anoint is? It's the word from which we get the word Messiah or Christ. So in our passage, God is, an, is leading us through this little journey to an anointed one. 
a Messiah, a Christ. And the first of these is Saul. That is very important. He's not a judge. God is making a critical appointment here on this day through this mechanism. And the rest of the the rest of scripture from this point on is about finding someone who genuinely will fulfill that calling. That's what the rest of scripture is about from this point. It's about a quest for an anointed king who will indeed deliver God's people from their worst enemies. A quest for the one whom God's spirit will rest on forever. That's the main point of this passage, I think. This is the beginning of a quest that will last until our Lord Jesus Christ. God is making a critical appointment here. Saul is the answer to the people's request for a king, but he is only the beginning of a long and more extraordinary quest for a more excellent king. But there's a subsidiary point that needs to be made here today. I wonder if you noticed something about the story while we went through it. And I, I think it is so wonderful. Who do you think is at the top of the order in terms of authority? Who's at the top of the order? Well, the story's straightforward, isn't it? God's at the top. He's the one who directs everything, isn't he? He is the one to whom everyone must be subject. And who's next on the list? Who's God's primary agent? Who represents God? Again, I think the story is very straightforward, isn't it? It's Samuel who's next. God, then Samuel. He's God's representative. As God's prophet, he's the one who directs and controls. He stands in God's presence and then speaks God's word. And who's next after Samuel? Well, at the beginning of the story, Saul's under the direction of his family, isn't he? But by the end of the story, things are very different. His father is no longer his human father. No, it's his spiritual director, Samuel. But there's another more important, who's more important than all of them. It's God. Because God chooses, God appoints, God's spirit now comes upon him and Saul is now under the direction of God. So at the end of the story, Saul's uncle is kept in the dark by Saul. Saul's now under a different leadership. He's under God's leadership. That point is critical. You see, Israel asked, had asked for a king like all the nations. Do you remember that? We want, we want kings like the nations. And God has given them something of what they wanted. But their leader is not a free agent. He's a man under authority. He is someone who lives under the authority of God. He's someone who must live under the direction of God, under the word of God. That's illustrated in this passage by the fact that Samuel, the prophet, oversees his appointment and actions. Prophets stand over kings in one sense, for they represent God. Can you see this? What is being said is very, very important. A king in Israel is not an autonomous agent. No, a king in Israel is a king who stands under the rule of God under the word of God, governed by the word of God. It's a very important thing to note. For you can check out all the kings that follow and you'll find this is the case. They are meant to be under the rule of God and his word. 
But I want to make one more point for this passage before as we wrap up. I wonder if you notice something else about this passage. And here's where the application will come for us. It's not the main point of the passage, but it arises out of how the story is told. You see, one of the striking things about this passage, which I love about it, is the number of characters in it. They're all over the place, aren't they? It's a very unusual passage in the Old Testament in terms of human involvement. You get people coming right, left and centre. Sure, we get God and Samuel and Saul, but we also get Saul's father, the servant, the cooks, the, the cook, sorry, the girls, the cook, the two men with the news, the three men with the food, the prophets, the uncle, everyone. <laughs> you get a whole host of them in this story. And God is doing an essential thing here. And in the process, he's involving all sorts of people in all sorts of ways. They're integrally sewn into this process. They don't know it, but God is using them in their actions for this one great big step in Israel and world history. Kish doesn't know it. But sending a son out for a quest for some lost donkey will fundamentally change his relationship with his son. It will fundamentally change the life of his son and the life of the people of God. The servant, that's just a quest for some lost animals. The servant doesn't know it, but his initiative in persuading Saul to get some help from a nameless seer is a mechanism God uses for Saul, to put Saul and Samuel in touch with each other. It's God's means of uh, bringing Saul to Samuel to be anointed and informed about his new role. And the girls are also part of the process. And so it is with every character in this story. But it's not only true of 1 Samuel 9 and 10, let me tell you. It's the way things are in the story of the Bible from the beginning to its end. You see, God has a plan and a purpose for his world. And God uses ordinary people to work it out. Ordinary people going about everyday lives he uses to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that grand? And it's that I want to close with today. You see, what the Bible is doing is it tells us stories like this in order to, to communicate to us that it is in the ordinary and the mundane that God is at work. And the mundane and the ordinary are therefore saturated with purpose. Can you see that? In a world where God is sovereign over the whole earth, nothing happens outside of his control. And if that's the case, then do you know what? Everything in life is sacred. <laughs> Everything in life is sacred. The ordinary, the mundane, the humdrum, these are the places where God is active. These are the places where he works out his purpose in his world. So, when you exercise some hospitality, you might find yourself entertaining angels unawares. <laughs> That's what scripture says. When we act in a godly way in our marketplace, in our workplace, we may actually be drawing people nearer to God. Not by the words we say, but by the lives we lead. When we choose to spend time with our families, we may lay the groundwork 
for those families' long-term future. Can you see what I'm saying? It's very, very important to grasp this. The decisions that I mentioned at the beginning are not the big ones. They are not the big ones. The big decisions are not education, career, jobs or the like, despite what I know many of you will have been taught from the day you were born. No. In fact, most of the decisions that we worry about most and spend so much time on are decisions that people never had to make for themselves up until two or three generations ago. They were made by other people. The decisions about career, who you married, how many children you had, where you lived, what you did with your money were all primarily determined by birth. That's why the Bible doesn't address them very much. You see, as far as God is concerned, the critical decisions are not those decisions. The critical decisions are the ones you make every day when you get out of bed in the morning and go to bed at night. They are these. Am I going to follow and serve Jesus today? Am I going to act justly today? Am I going to live rightly with my wife, my husband, the person I'm going out with, my children, my employer, my employees and the government? Am I going to love people just as God loved me? Am I going to accept others as God has accepted me? Am I going to keep my eyes and my minds off things that will harm my relationship with God and others? Am I going to help this person who's in need? Am I going to act appropriately sexually? Am I going to use my money on myself in this situation? Am I going to study as an act of worship? Am I going to use my time in this manner or that manner? Am I going to love others as Christ has loved me? Can you see what I'm saying? God wants us to decide in these energies. That's where God wants us to give our focus and energy in terms of decision making. Not those massive ones we think. No, he wants us to decide, to decide for him in the everyday. These are the ones to concentrate on, to give energy to, to give thought to. Will you concentrate on these things? They are where life and godliness are found. Just read the epistles, you'll see that. They are where Christ is most honoured. Just listen to the teaching of Jesus. Listen to what the epistles speak about. That's the concentration. Loving God. Loving your neighbour in the mundane and ordinary daily life in a world that is overseen by God. Put your energy and your effort there. That's what God wants. Let's pray. Father, please help us to love you and love our neighbour in daily life for this is a world overseen by you. We pray that you'd help us to put our energy in the right place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.